Sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much, Brock, for having me. It's, it's always a pleasure to, to get to talk to um, innovators like yourself and, and to be a part of the ecosystem that you're building. Um, so um, to, to start with a little bit of my background, um, I began my career in management consulting out of college. So I was working at a consulting firm in Washington, D.C., um, focused on mergers and acquisitions. So we would help companies who are acquiring other companies. And that was actually my first introduction to intellectual property. So we would work with companies that had just acquired other companies that had a lot of intellectual property. And those companies would come to us and, and ask us to help them understand the value of that IP they were acquiring. Um, and so, of course, we said, sure, we would help them analyze that IP, tell them what it was worth. Um, and what was fascinating that we very quickly learned is that even the companies that were being acquired that had developed this IP knew very little about its value. They didn't have any of the tools um, to, to manage that IP. And so we saw very quickly that there was this acute problem in the market, that IP was quickly becoming companies' most valuable assets. And yet they didn't really understand how to manage it. They weren't getting any value out of it. And so um, I actually helped found a practice within our consulting firm to start where we were trying to do this as a service. But we really quickly learned that technology was going to be the answer to this problem, that companies needed better systems um, to solve this. And so um, to kind of bring it back to your original question, you know, I got into entrepreneurship really through a much more traditional career. Um, but I think it's a path that a lot of entrepreneurs take, which is that they see a very discrete problem in the area that they're working in. And then they realize that there aren't any solutions and that so they have to go out and, and create a company that's going to, to solve that. And so that was really the genesis for TradeSpace um, to, to solve that, that critical problem around IP. So how does the TradeSpace use AI to um, solve the patent management? Absolutely. So to, to even start answering this question, I think we need to talk a little bit about what patents and intellectual property are, um, because they, they lend themselves to, to AI very, very well. Um, so for any engineer out there, you've probably had some exposure to patents, right? You, you create a new technology and essentially apply for a patent to, to protect that, that technology, to ensure that no other company or, or person can use that technology that you've invented um, without your permission. Um, but in order to, to protect that technology, you need to create all of this written documentation describing the technology, describing precisely how it's protected. Um, and that, that description ends up being highly technical. It also ends up being very focused on, on legalese or, or legal language. And this is something that AI does a very good job of. So the biggest challenge in, in the IP space is that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of patents, right? I think the, the last time I checked, there was about 100 million. Um, and so companies just don't have the resources to read all of these patents themselves and understand them. And, and AI does a tremendous job of very, very quickly reading through thousands of pages of documents and then generating very structured answers about those documents. And so what Tradespace does is it enables companies to bring in their intellectual property and very, very quickly understand that IP using AI to be able to ask questions of their IP portfolio, um, to be able to evaluate new IP they're creating 
to understand how does this fit into our existing portfolio? How does this compare to what our competitors are doing? Um, this is all work that would have required somebody in the IP team to read 10,000 patents beforehand. And now AI can do it in a matter of seconds. And so that's really where we're heavily invested in taking large language models that exist today, making them even better at understanding the language that's spoken in patents, and then on teaching those large language models to do very, very specific tasks that are relevant um, to the world of IP. And, and that's, I think, a theme that we really focus on a lot. Um, obviously, AI and large language models are incredibly hot right now. Um, and so you'll see a lot of startups with really talented engineers that are working on AI platforms. Um, but I think what we're gonna see in the market, Brock, is that the companies that are successful are the ones that are able to bring a high level of domain or application specific expertise to AI. So looking for teams that have, you know, in our case, people who've managed IP portfolios their entire careers, right? We just hired um, the head of IP for KPMG. We hired the head of IP for applied materials to bring that expertise to these AI models. And so that I think is a really important dynamic around AI is the companies that win are gonna be the ones that can use AI well, but can also map it to very, very specific use cases for a given domain. Should you give a concrete example of one of the companies, how they use um, uh, a special trade space solution? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'll give an example of a very large IT services company that has mm -hmm. one of the largest patent portfolios in the US. Um, and so because of this, because of the fact that they own hundreds of thousands of patents, they spend over $10 million every year filing new patents. They also spend another $40 million managing their existing portfolio. And so this company used TradeSpace to essentially evaluate every new idea that their engineering R&D team brought to the IP department and make a better decision about whether to even file a patent on that. So TradeSpace was able to read that invention and understand, has anybody created patents on this before? What is the size of the market for this? What are the technical challenges? So we give the company all the information they need to decide should we even patent this? Because previously that company was essentially filing patents on every invention that, that came out of the IP department or the R&D department. And for that company, it didn't seem like a lot of money, right? They're spending 10 to $20,000 per patent. But when they file 10,000 patents a year, that becomes a lot of money. And so with TradeSpace, they were able to reduce the number of patents they were actually filing every year but significantly increase the quality of those. So they were only filing patents on technology that was very, very strong that they could actually use to create value for the business. Um, so that I think is a really discrete use case. Um, they also then use TradeSpace to file those patents more effectively. So there's a whole lot of administrative work that goes into filing a patent. Lots of forms you have to sign, lots of tasks you have to create, all these things that really lend themselves well to AI. So we're able to reduce the time and money that this company spends filing its patents by about 50%, which is pretty incredible. Um, so again, looking at last year, we're able to save this company millions of dollars in, in patent filing costs 
um, while helping them build a much stronger IP portfolio that supports the business. Are there any competitors uh, or what sets trade space apart from its rivals? Yeah, so when you look at the, the world of IP management, um, it's pretty similar to a lot of other domains that I think AI is going to have a real disruptive um, change for. So I think in IP management, you have a group of companies that were founded maybe 20 years ago that use very basic digital technologies like relational databases to try to help companies manage their, their IP. And so there are a couple of companies that do this. Um, but again, being built 20 years ago, they don't really accommodate the, the analysis that's needed to, to really manage IP. They also don't think about IP as part of the larger business. You know, all they are is a database to store patents. They don't realize that patents are an integral part of every other piece of decision-making in the company. Um, so TradeSpace is really able to bring the, the business lens to, to the world of IP, um, and we're able to automate a significant amount of that work. So with TradeSpace compared to an, another kind of IP management database, um, we're able to bring in IP intelligence. So decision intelligence to make better decisions. We're able to significantly speed up the process. Um, and again, we're able to connect everything to the business. So we're taking a system that everybody kind of has, but is really old and never really added any value and re-envisioning it in a way that's going to actually create new value for the business. And how does the trade space handle the complexities of patent laws and regulations? Yeah, so this is another area where AI actually does a really, really good job uh, because yes, patent law is complex, but it's very standardized and AI models like rules. Anything that is very rule-based, we can build a database of those rules. We can use that to tune a model and we can also use that for what's called retrieval augmented generation. So we can bring that, that rules document in anytime our AI is making a recommendation and use that to ensure that anything our AI generates follows those rules precisely. And so while it is complex, I think what you'll find is that it actually lends itself very well to, to AI. I think one of the areas that is going to be a little bit more challenging, but we're going to see a lot of disruption in soon is, is AI written patents. And so this is an area where AI, I think, has a little bit of work to do. So AI is great at following and applying those rules where AI is maybe not as good is at applying the art that a human might bring. So a human patent attorney who's writing a patent is going to add a certain amount of nuance based on their understanding of the technology and the company and the market that a piece of AI that's just following rules today might not necessarily get to. And so one of the areas where I think we're really excited to follow is how we can evolve from AI models that can follow complex rules to AI models that can actually begin to imitate a human when it comes to the nuance and the art of doing a complex task. What are the key features of your platform that users love the most? Yeah, that's a great question and something I, I really get excited to talk about. Um, so the first is, is this feature called the IP evaluation. So like I said before, when, when IP departments get 
a new invention from the R&D team. It might be a 30-page paper that's highly technical, right? You know, it's written by a researcher. And so today they have to read that entire 30-page paper and then spend weeks Googling to kind of understand the paper to figure out, are there any similar technologies? Um, with Tradespace, they simply press a button and within five seconds, they get a full report on the new technology that tells them, is it patentable? What are the uses for this? How does this technology impact my company's products? How does it relate to my competitors' products? And so again, within about five seconds, they're able to make an intelligent decision about what to do with that technology. Um, and that would have taken them weeks, if not months before. Um, the second piece, which I get really excited about is a tool that enables companies to look at any given piece of IP in their portfolio and immediately find potential partners or licensees. So IP is really interesting in that companies can license their IP to other companies that are maybe using a similar technology to, to build their products. And so um, that's something that a lot of companies are interested in because it drives new revenue for them. But it's really hard today to find those, those companies that might want to license your IP. And again, with Tradespace, we're able to use our large language models to instantly look at a piece of IP and then analyze every product description for every product in the world instantly and find what are the other products out there that could benefit from this piece of IP. And so within seconds, we're able to tell a company, here are the 10 other companies you need to talk to who could benefit from licensing your IP. Here is the contact information for the people at those companies you need to talk to. And so obviously that creates a lot of value for those companies because it's driving new revenue. But from our perspective, we love it because it's also just unlocking new innovation, right? These are companies that are trying to solve hard problems and we're giving them access to IP and new technologies that solve those problems. So it's bringing together smart people from multiple companies to solve a problem that otherwise would not be solved. And so that I think is really what gets our team super excited um, to add you know, impact to the world. What were your, the challenges in the early days while you were prototyping or setting up the first product and uh, with the customers and also with the uh, product market fit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think the challenge that almost every startup faces is, you know, trying to connect, you know, what customers really need and will pay for to the product. And so for better or for worse, I started the company with a pretty detailed understanding of the IP space. I knew what I would need as an expert to be able to analyze IP, to be able to help with licensing. Um, however, what I might need might be a little bit different than how a company would use this. And so I think one of the biggest challenges was getting enough insight from, from companies around the features that they actually need. And so I think it's really easy to just talk to people at companies and say, well, what do you need with IP? You know, what are the tools? Um, however, there's usually a disconnect between what they say they need and what they'll actually pay for. And so what we ended up doing is, you know, building a lot of, of product and features that I think were really interesting to, to other companies, but that they wouldn't necessarily pay for um, either because they didn't, we didn't have the right business model because there wasn't an established category for that because there wasn't a cost center. And so one of the things that we did end up doing fairly early was 
focusing on whatever we could sell, even in the really early stages before we had a product, we would sell a service to companies that would essentially replicate the product we're in the process of building and say, okay, well, are they going to pay for this? And that actually helped us a lot because it taught us exactly what we needed to build. But, but that's always a challenge is getting that user feedback on what they would pay for. Um, and yeah, that was a really big challenge. You know, other than that, there's the typical challenges I think that entrepreneurs face, you know, building networks, uh, raising capital. Um, personally, I, I moved to San Francisco uh, right when we founded the company. Um, and obviously San Francisco has great startup infrastructure. However, what I learned very quickly was I didn't have a personal network there. And so I was fortunate enough to participate in the 500 Startups Program, which is a San Francisco-based incubator um, that helped me kind of build that network. Um, but I would say for other entrepreneurs who are getting started, maybe entrepreneurs that are based in Istanbul, you know, there's not necessarily a need to move to Silicon Valley on day one. In fact, you might be better served by taking advantages of the infrastructure that exists within Istanbul, within the networks that you already have, working with organizations like Startup Istanbul. Uh, because again, it's, you know, eventually the, the money that exists in Silicon Valley is hard to say no to, but at day one, you don't really need hundreds of millions of dollars. What you need is a network. You need people who are on your team supporting you. And I think that's one of the challenges early on. And you really can't underestimate the value of, you know, having a network built in, in a place where other people are kind of trying to solve problems as well. So should you share your story about how you raised the last funding round? Absolutely. Um, Again, I think funding is is incredibly difficult um, until it gets really easy, um, which is kind of a funny thing to say. Um, but um, the way you know my experience with with raising money from venture capitalists is um, really informed by Marvin Lau, who is a, a former partner at Five Hundred Startups um, and you know, continues to be, I think, a really influential uh, VC investor. But um, he essentially taught us that um, it's a numbers game, right? You know, you need to build a list of as many potential VC investors as you can, sometimes over a hundred, and expect that 90 to 95% of those are gonna say no to you. Um, however, as you get to pitch to those, starting with maybe some of the smaller funds and working your way up to the larger funds, you refine your message, you understand what you need to say. And so for our experience, I think we probably pitched 50 investment funds that said no before we got to our lead. Um, which is ENIAC Ventures. And so we, we work with um, Tim Young, who's the general partner over there who led our round and it ended up being a perfect fit. Um, so we had talked to ENIAC during our pre-seed round. Tim Young was a former IP attorney, so he knew the space, he loved legal tech um, and he was willing to make a risk and, and you know lead the investment. And so it took a lot of time kind of finding that right partner. Um, however, once we found them, um, it's pretty incredible how the dynamic changed. So once we found our lead, then all of a sudden we were having to say no to, to investors. Um, we went from an initial investment of one and a half million dollars from ENIAC to, you know, over seven million dollars on the table. And, and, you know, for purposes of dilution, we had to say no to that. Um, and we ended up closing around at about four million. Um, but it's really remarkable kind of how the, the investor ecosystem works. As soon as investors see a positive sign, right? An indicator like another investor sending a term sheet, 
um, all of a sudden the dynamics change. And so I, I guess my advice for for entrepreneurs is again to build as robust a process as, as possible and understand that you can be having absolutely no success for the first 49 calls. And then if you're able to get one person to believe in you, all of a sudden the dynamic completely changes. So it's really an exercise in resilience and being able to continue to just hammer away um, and, and be able to build that network. So um, that was our experience at least. I mean, entrepreneur life uh, looks like a roller coaster. How do you stay motivated during tough times in in your startup journey? Yeah, um, I would say I'm a, a fairly stubborn person. And so motivation is not hard for me. I want to solve this problem. And I, I think it's going to be hard to stop until this problem is really solved at scale. Um, I think the bigger challenge for me is self-care. It is ensuring that I have equipped myself with kind of the right tools to be able to not just keep working on this, but working on this effectively, um, while also kind of maintaining the other important parts of my life, right? Building and growing a relationship with my wife, um, building friendships that are going to last a lifetime. And so one of the things that I found was, you know, my levels of anxiety were a lot higher than they used to be kind of over the last year. Um, just Two, lots to do every new person we hired that's you know new responsibility and so um, I started looking at kind of ways to increase energy increase efficiency reduce stress um, and it was really kind of simple things um, first right I focused on sleep um, obviously as an entrepreneur you're looking to kind of get as much productivity out of every hour of the day um, but what I found was that for me you know I needed seven hours of sleep at least every day and sacrificing that was not actually going to get any more work done. Um, so I started being very strict about ensuring I got seven hours every day. Um, for me, it's other things, you know, understanding what continues to get you excited. Um, I ended up spending extra money on a gym membership um, because I knew that, you know, going to a nicer gym was going to get me excited to go to work every day. And it would give me energy. So focusing on those things, um, meditation as well is something that I have really focused on over the last year. Um, and, you know, for me, it, it offers kind of a, an opportunity to be more present to, to kind of get out of my head. And so I'll spend 10 to 15 minutes every morning. There's a little hill behind my house and I'll go out and meditate. Um, and I think other people, you know, might have other ways to do this, but I think the takeaway is you can't spend every minute thinking about the startup. Maybe you can spend most minutes thinking about your startup, but you'll actually be better and smarter if you can kind of pull your head away. Um, and so I think those are really the things that, that I focus on, right? Is meditation, identifying those activities that are not work that really get you excited. Um, and then sleep and ensuring you're building out time for the rest of your life, right? Um, you know, obviously startups are important, but you know, your the relationships you're building with the rest of the world are equally important. And so you can't sacrifice those. What is the one piece of advice you wish you had uh, uh, when you had you started? That's that's a great question. Um, you know, I think the one piece of advice is to spend almost every minute of your time early on talking to customers um 
as much time as humanly possible, just talking to potential customers, learning everything you can, again, trying to get them to buy things, you know, even if you don't have a product. Um, I think it's really tempting to go out and just start building. And it's not a bad thing. You obviously need to build a product. And, but I think the sooner you can be talking to customers to try to get whatever you have in front of customers, I think that's the most important thing. I think we as a company spent more time than we should have in our early days working on concepts, building out features that we never really ended up needing, that we don't even use today. Um, so I think it's just, you know, the more you can talk to customers. And I think, you know, there's a lot of resources out there for kind of startup hacks and everything like that. Um, ultimately, you know, those may or may not be helpful, but the one thing that's going to really make you successful is going to be your ability to, to understand the customer dynamic and the need and get to that product market fit. I mean, uh, you, you said about hacking. So what, what's your favorite creative hack for being productive as a founder? Let's see. I mean, I think it's really simple things. You know, sleep is probably the most important, right? You know, I'm more productive if I get seven hours of sleep than if I get five. Um, but beyond that, I would say limiting your context switching as much as possible. And what I mean by that is, you know, I'm looking at my, my computer right now and I have, you know, 20 Slack messages. I have 40 emails. Um, I have 20 tabs open um, and I've got, you know, 15 more meetings coming up after this today. Um, and so it's really easy to be working on one task and then switch over to email to look for something and then see another unread email and try to respond to that. And it's incredible to me how your productivity and creative process declines when you start doing that, right? I think that the research is it takes at least 15, sometimes 30 minutes to get your brain to, to switch from one task to another. And so the more you can be incredibly disciplined at saying, okay, I'm doing this task right now and I'm not gonna do anything else until I'm finished. And I'm gonna give myself 20 minutes to finish this task. And then whether, you know, Whatever happens after that, I'm done with that task. I move on to the next. And I think when I'm able to do that, I'm more productive. I'm more creative um, because my, my full attention is focused on that problem. Um, and I'm less stressed out. Whereas when you're jumping between a bunch of different things, it's incredible how, how everything kind of snowballs. So I would say that is, is a simple practice that has been really helpful for me. And do you believe in work-life balance or what does your ideal work-life balance look like as a founder? I do believe in work-life balance. Um, again, I think you need to have some life that's not work in order to be better at work. Um, now, I don't think your work-life balance as a founder is going to be the same as your work-life balance as somebody who is you know, working at an established Fortune 500 company. Um, so you're going to have to make trade-offs. You know, I don't spend as much time as I'd like with my wife. I don't get to spend as much time as I'd like with my friends, um, but I do spend time. And I think it's essential to have those rules to say, look, you know, we're going to go out to dinner once a week, no matter what, no matter how busy I am. Um, I'm going to, you know, spend half a day every weekend with a different friend. Um, so I think it's critical to have that. It's not going to be a 50-50 work-life balance split, but 
having any life and having rules around that, I think creates the balance that you need in your work life. Um, that's at least how, you know, how I feel. I think others, you know, are successful with other practices, but, um, for me, that gives me the energy to be able to kind of attack the, the entrepreneurship journey with as much energy as I need. What is the best uh, career advice or life advice you have ever received, by the way? Yeah, so actually it's from my father who spent his whole career in human resources. So his job was always to, you know, hire new people. And I think coming out of college, I was very pre preoccupied with the implications of the decision I was about to make about which job I took. And the advice he gave me was, you know, don't worry that much about whatever you do. It's, you know, you're going to work at, you know, 10 different jobs, probably more in your life. And so there's almost infinite opportunities to change what you're doing to pivot. And so I think never let like your fear of, of going down one path, stop you from making a decision because, you know, there's always the opportunity to change, to pivot, to do something different. Um, so I think it's, it's that, and that of, of course applies to the entrepreneurial journey, right? You know, I think there's a lot of people, myself included, who were, you know, very nervous about starting a company because it's the opportunity cost of what else you can be doing, right? You know, I, I ended up turning down a job at a private equity fund, you know, right before I, I started this company. And so knowing that, oh, well, you know, I could be making more money, I could be having more stability. Um, I think knowing that those decisions are not necessarily forever, and that you can always pivot, you can always do something new, that's incredibly important to to don't to not be afraid to to make a decision about trying a job just because you think it's going to close other doors we are living in a very uh, fast era uh, especially unlearn and relearning is very important so what is the most valuable thing you have had to unlearn or relearn as an entrepreneur it's interesting um I think I have had to change habits around, you know, working quite a bit. Um, during the pandemic, um, I, I learned habits around, you know, working from home. And I think they ultimately were, were relatively unhealthy, right? It was, you know, I would wake up at seven in the morning and I would start checking email about five minutes after I woke up and I would essentially just work until six, eat a quick dinner and then continue working. Uh, you know, until midnight, essentially. And it, it's pretty funny. Uh, there's a, a permanent indent on, on my couch for where I would just sit there working for, you know, 12 hours to 16 hours a day. And so I think I was surprised by how difficult it was for me to try to pivot back into to going into the office, which it turns out for me is really important um, to productivity. I think there's others who really value kind of the flexibility of working from home. But I had kind of said, you know, coming out of the pandemic, I want to be in the office a little bit more. We're growing a team. I want to be with people. And it was very difficult to, to relearn those habits of just waking up in the morning, getting ready for work, going into the office and kind of building around that. Um, it took me probably about six months to get into a good routine of going in three to four days a week. So I was really surprised how difficult it was to relearn that habit. But it was really important for me to again try to establish a little bit more of that work-life balance you know now even if i'm working 
you know, 16 hours a day, 18 hours a day, I have that, that change between the office and home. Um, and that's been incredibly important for me. And also the last question, what lessons have you learned from your failures? Yeah, I would say, you know, some of my biggest failures have come from probably not listening to, to others' advice. Um, you know, I think I've been very good about asking for advice, um, but I think as an entrepreneur, you, you kind of feel isolated. You feel like you're in your own bubble and that maybe advice doesn't apply to you the same way because, you know, your situation is so unique. You have all these challenges. Um, and so I, I really think understanding kind of, you know, if you're not going to accept somebody's advice, you know, why that is kind of what maybe predilections you have that are causing you to do that. Um, but I would say typically when you go out for advice, especially to people who are really, really qualified, um, for example, you know, I've made some bad hires. Um, and in those cases, I have a really good friend who leads an executive recruiting firm who advised me on those hires and following his advice would have saved me a lot of time and money. Um, so I think it's really that, right? You know, not necessarily doing everything people tell you, but when you go out to people you trust who are experts and, and get their advice, I think it's really putting a lot of stock into understanding why they're telling you that. Um, listening, uh, I think a little bit more than you're just, than you're talking yourself. So I, I would certainly focus on that. Thank you, Alec, for sharing your insights and experiences uh, with us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Brock. It's really been a pleasure. And, and I'm an incredible fan of everything you're doing um, with Startup Istanbul. Um, so thank you again. Have a great week. You too. Take care.